0: In May of 1995, I caught a plane in Atlanta, Georgia and flew out to Orange County, California. After I landed, I rented a car and drove to Claremont where I'd be defending my dissertation at the School of Theology at, at Claremont. I rented a cheap motel near the school, went out and gave my, uh, splurged a little bit on a cheeseburger and some fries. That's back in the days when I could eat that and not gain any weight. And then I went back to my, my little hotel room, and I opened up my suitcase, which was three quarters full of all my notes from my dissertation, and I spread them all around the, the room, on the bed, on the various countertops and such, and had a pile of sticky notes, and began to write uh, notes and comments on the wall about different things connected to my dissertation. And what I was trying to do was imagine, what questions will they ask? <clears throat> What issues will they confront? What, what kind of evidence will I need to show to, bake up some, to back up some of the arguments that I'm making? I was nervous. I was anxious. But after about four or five hours of work, it got to be about 10 o'clock. Still a little, a little bit anxious about the day. I went to bed and slept quite well. I was prepared. I was ready to go. Drove to the school, found a little room where we were meeting it really wasn't a room. It felt more like an interrogation closet. <laughs> it was a table with four chairs for the three committee members and, and me. Well, the committee was nice and, and gracious at the beginning and, and asked about my family. And Juliet had, had, had a baby six months before and asked about the church and I was serving, how that was going. And then Dr. Kinnerum, my major professor, the chair of the committee, <clears throat> said to me, we have a symposium going on right now here at the School of Theology on violence in the world. According to your research, now my research was on preaching the Hebrew Bible, what we call sometimes the Old Testament, in the Christian pulpit. The, the work that I'd done was on how to interpret the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, when preaching a sermon to a gathering of Christians. I was arguing that it was a, a viable source for us as people of faith, as followers of Jesus, and that's a viable uh, bit of sacred writing for the entire world. That was my argument. Canerim says, in light of your research and this symposium on violence, what does the Old Testament have to say about violence in the world? I began to immediately sweat like crazy. I mean, flop sweating. I was like, "I, I, uh, (coughs) I wasn't prepared for this. Now, I know some good answers now, but then I was just, I sort of stumbled and, and hemmed and hawed. I said, um, uh, Swords, plowshares, something like that. He stopped. He said, Did you take any classes with me? <laughs> <clears throat> yes, sir, I, I did. Um, I'm sorry. And they said, Well, look, what, is the, what is the point of the story of Noah? Why is the world destroyed? And again, I. The sweat just continued to pour. I'm not sure. Genesis 6.13, he quoted from memory. And he said, The world was full of violence. And violence, he said, leads to violence, which leads to violence, which leads ultimately to destruction. The destruction of the world came because of the violence of the people. Now, I'm embarrassed to admit this out loud. I was 35 years old at that time. I'd been to a Bible college. I'd had a Master of Divinity degree from a seminary. I'd completed three years of study for my my doctorate, and I'd never focused on that verse a single time. Now I can I can kind of defend myself a little bit. I grew up in much more conservative evangelical fundamentalist style churches, and we were told that the reason for the flood in Noah's time was because the people uh, were involved in sexual sin and drinking and dancing, and that those those messages were even amplified when we got into junior high and high school years, and, and that's what we were told. That's what it was. That's what it was about. Well. I've gone back and looked at the story since that canerum experience in my dissertation, defense, and realized none of that stuff's mentioned. The only thing specifically singled out is violence. Violence and violence and violence ultimately leads to destruction. Now, let me be clear about the story of Noah. It's a myth, it's a myth that's shared by many cultures around the world. Have you heard of the Gilgamesh epic? Gilgamesh was essentially the Babylonian Noah. He didn't build a big boat, he built a gigantic raft, brought all the animals on board to save them. Have you heard this before? You heard this kind of story before? Our our indigenous friends in North America have similar stories of a worldwide catastrophic flood And there does seem to be some geological evidence that indeed the world may have been covered mostly by water at some point in our ancient, ancient past. But the story of Noah is not science. It's not history. It's a story making the point that violence leads to violence. And until we end that cycle, it's just going to continue. Jesus knows the story of Noah. Jesus has a message that he is single-mindedly focused upon. It's, it's energized by the love of God. It's fueled by the forgiveness of God. And there is no room in his movement. There is no room on his way for violence. Luke begins in chapter 9 of his gospel with what scholars call his log the story of Jesus moving from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south. Again, he has this single-minded purpose to bring this news, this good news of God's universal love given to you and me and to everyone else who ever has lived or will live, bringing that to Jerusalem, which for Jesus would have been the center of his world so that that message can then spread from there to the world beyond. And Luke begins Jesus' journey by cutting through Samaria, now, by the way, Luke's travel log is terrible geography. He has Jesus here, then he's here, then he's over here. He's going. None of it makes sense if you're going to Jerusalem. But Luke doesn't care about geography. He's a preacher. He's a theologian. He cares about theology. He wants to make the point about all the messages Jesus is sharing with all the different people that he encounters on his way to Jerusalem. He wants to make that point as clear as he possibly can. And if, it, if this message is truly universal, If it's truly given to all of God's people, he has to start in Samaria. He has to begin with the Samaritans. Jews and Samaritans had hated each other for 700 years. Now, the argument is theological, which is one of the worst kind of arguments to, to get upset with each other over. The, the Samaritans essentially believed that re- Jerusalem wasn't the place to worship, that a mountain in their area, in their, in their section of the world, was a mountain where God should be, should be worshipped. Now, that's an overly simplistic description of it, but that's essentially it. What's really going on? It's a family fight. It's a family fight. You ever had a fight in your family? I don't see any heads nodding. Have you ever had a fight in your family before? I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with folks where they begin by saying, I haven't talked to my daughter for 20 years. I haven't talked to my dad since I left home. I haven't talked to, don't nod your head or anything, but does this sound familiar? Sometimes family fights, we can't even remember. Why did you stop talking to your dad? Honestly, I don't know what it was. That's where Jews and Samaritans are. They're in the midst of this family fight. They hate each other. And what Luke knows is if Jesus' message is truly for everyone, he's got to go to Samaria, to people who may hate him. He's got to bring that word there first on his way to Jerusalem. And as you heard the text being read by Andy this morning, they get there and the Samaritans quote, do not receive Jesus. It's just kind of a shrug. They don't receive him. Jesus had told his disciples before, if you go to a village and they don't receive you, just take your sandals off, shake off the dust, put them back on, and get going. That's all. But James and John... They're called the sons of thunder in Mark's gospel. What do they call down? They want to call down fire from heaven. Lord, they've rejected you. Let us call down fire from heaven. We'll destroy this village. That's what we need to do. Jesus rebukes them. There's probably more than just a simple rebuke. I'm certain that Jesus said something along these lines. Violence like that will never be a part of my ministry. That has nothing to do with the way I'm leading people to follow. Ever. 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 Did you know for 300 years, most of the people, the first 300 years of the church's history, most of the people who became followers of Jesus became pacifists. It changed when Constantine converted to Christianity and made Christianity the official religion of the empire. For 1700 years, we've been trying to find our way back to the way of Jesus. Now, another scholar I read this week, he compared James and John to a, to a tent evangelist. I know we've got a tent here, but a little bit different kind than, than what, we're, what, what you might hear from, from us. To a tent evangelist who comes into town and he's riling the people up and he's talking about, about grace and grace that's freely given and the universal love of God given for everyone. and It's a beautiful thing and a wonderful thing. And then folks just kind of shrug and don't, Receive the message, no one comes forward. And what what do these tent evangelists do, according to my friend who I read last week? Oh, they get upset and they start throwing balls of fire all over the all and damnation and hellfire and threatening them. If you don't believe, if you don't follow, if you don't come with us, you're gonna f- suffer torment eternally in hell forever. My friends, let me be clear. That's nothing more than baptized violence. It's a threat of baptized violence, and it has nothing to do with the ministry, the teaching, the message, and the life of Jesus the Christ. Nothing. I read Annie Dillard's book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, many years ago. In that book, she tells a story about an indigenous person in Alaska who's out hunting for food for his family he comes upon a Christian missionary. They know each other. They greet each other, say hello. And then after a while, the indigenous person, the the hunter, says to the missionary, asks him a question. If I didn't know about God and sin, would I still go to hell? The missionary quickly replied, no, of course not. If you did not know, you would not be sent there. The indigenous person earnestly asks the missionary, then why did you tell me? Yeah, there's a little bit of a chuckle there, yes. And the story makes a deeply serious point. If the good news we have to share is God loves you, but, there's no good news there. If if someone says to you, I love you but, which part of the sentence are they emphasizing? I love you but, there is no violence in the ministry and teaching of Jesus. There's no room ever for any reason, for violence in the church of Jesus Christ. Anyone who proclaims to be a follower of that one who wants to use violence. I read a book last summer. It's titled Sapiens. My, and I'm gonna destroy his name. I, I apologize in advance. Yuval Noah Hariar. I think I'm saying it correctly, close. He's a professor in Israel, a brilliant writer. He tells the story, the history of humankind. Uh, like I said, it's titled Sapiens. He explains why sapiens became the predominant form of human that survived. It's only about three, 400 pages long. It's written in a way that regular folks like us can, can understand. But regularly throughout, the, he goes from the very beginning of the first human being standing up all the way to present time. And along the way, he discusses how most of the violence perpetrated in our world was done by religion, that much of the violence done in the history of the world was done in the name of our God or our gods. I was reading it on the plane coming back from Oregon last summer with Julie after a few days with her family out there, and I was getting irritated and upset and angry, and I just, I, she could tell I was getting irritated, and she said, what's going on? I said, this guy's saying that Christians have committed too much violence, and we're, oh, it seems like everything comes back to Christians, and he's very critical of us. And she said, well, yeah, we've forgotten the way of Jesus too many times too often we've gotten we've gotten lost along the way what would happen if we began to take jesus seriously what would happen hey, philip gully somebody who i'm going to interview on a zoom call coming up in october or september he's one of my favorite writers brilliant theologian a marvelous preacher he says in his book if if grace was true that there was a time when he was delivering a sermon similar to the content that i'm i'm sharing with you and this woman came up to him out in the narthex afterwards, cup of coffee, and she said, "Pastor Philip, um are you saying God's love is universal? Yes. Are you saying that all of us will be gathered up together in the resurrection? Yes. If that's true, why should I bother with Jesus?" she asked. He replied, "I never considered Jesus a bother." Yeah, it's kind of cute. And it's making a very deep and serious point. If we follow in this way, is it dangerous? Is it frightful? Is it, is it filled with, uh, with, 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 as the old hymn from Amazing Grace, the old line from Amazing Grace says, filled with dangers, toils, and snares? Of course. Of course. I mean, think about it. Jesus somehow, I don't know how, but he somehow knows His life is in danger. He somehow knows every step he gets closer to Jerusalem, the more the danger lurks and waits, and yet he goes forward. Philip Gulley talked about this too. He says that it's grace that got Jesus killed. I want you to see the longer quote. Grace got Jesus killed Jesus died because the clash between unwavering love and unyielding pride and intolerance always result in a cross or an assassination or torture or imprisonment or persecution. The cross is simply one more sign of humanity's consistent resistance to grace. We silence any messenger who challenges our quest for a favored position. Read that line again. We silence any messenger who challenges our quest for a favored position. That's a hard quote to share on a Sunday morning. And yet if we review, we know it's true. The second half of the text that Andy read for us today details a number of persons, three of them, who come up to Jesus and are interested in following Him? The first one says, I, "I want to follow you." And Jesus essentially says, "I'm homeless. Are you ready to sleep on the ground? Are you ready?" Another one comes and says, "I, I want to follow you, but my father's died. I need you to take care. Of him. Let the dead bury the dead." Jesus says, "Not very pastoral in that moment." Another says, "I want to follow too, but but I'm, i I got to take care of my family." And again, Jesus is very clear: Don't look back if you're plowing the field. The line won't remain straight. Now, now, just sit here for a moment. I saw somebody who called this the gospel of hyperbole. Luke and Jesus are, are making a broader point. If somebody has died in your family, of course you need to take care of them. If there's something you need to take care of in business in your family, of course you need to do that. What Jesus is trying to say is, look how important this is. Look how vital this is. We have so much to do. There's so much work. We've got to take this message. We've got to get to Jerusalem. Have you read a paper this week? Have you listened to the news? Have you found a website to read, to keep track of what's going on in the United States of America? What's going on in different parts of the world, in Ukraine, in Africa? Is there a time, maybe it's just because I'm living it, but is there, has there ever been a time when the world was more desperate for this word of hope this message of love this word about forgiveness has there ever been a time in our history maybe there has been but my friends it feels to me like today is the day like now is the time to find the courage to be on the way with Jesus is it dangerous Jesus says it is But when I was a nine-year-old boy, I gave my heart and soul to Jesus Christ as my Savior. I think about what that means a lot differently today. But it's the same heart and the same soul. When I, give a, when I conduct a wedding ceremony, many of the couples will have a unity candle you know, where there are two candles burning and they together light a center candle. Before they do that act, I remind the congregation that's gathered, I remind the couple standing before me that despite all of the darkness and fear around us and in the universe, there's not enough darkness in the entire universe to extinguish the light of a single candle. There's not enough darkness to extinguish the light of one simple flame. Maybe that's where it begins. Maybe what you and I do is we start to light candles. We have some lit here. Maybe we start to light a candle against the darkness. Maybe that candle looks like a smile for a friend or a stranger. Maybe it's a kind word. Maybe it's choosing forgiveness over revenge. Maybe it's feeding someone who's hungry, giving water to someone who's thirsty. Maybe it begins with you and I deciding together as a family of faith that we're going to walk this path, that we're going to go this way, that we're going to travel this road because we are ready to light a candle, Against the darkness. In the name of the one. Who gave his life. Amen.